You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking to kindergarten teacher Casey Jurgens about the big changes he experienced moving from balanced reading to structured literacy. He'll share what's changed in his overall literacy block, then get into the nuances of small group instruction. We also have returning guest Natalie Wexler with us to uplift some research about small group instruction. You might be surprised about the way we consider approaching small group time. We can't wait to keep learning together today. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we are so excited because we are talking to a teacher who we met on Twitter. Thank you to the Twitterverse for this connection. (laughs) He caught our attention because he dares to be different about his approach to small group instruction, and it really resonated with us. So we wanted to learn more. Yeah. So our guest today is Casey Jurgens, and he's a longtime first grade teacher, but he's new to kindergarten this year. Um, So but he'll talk to us about the changes in his instructional block and specifically around small group instruction, the changes he made on his journey as he learned about science of reading. And Lori didn't even mention we also have a special guest. uh, I didn't. That's all for you to say. (laughs) Our old friend Natalie Wexler is here with us again. So she'll be... um, popping in to give some information about small group instruction that she wrote about in a recent article. And if you don't know, she's the author of The Knowledge Gap, which we've talked about a million times. So I can't imagine that you wouldn't know. (laughs) Yeah. And co-author of The Writing Revolution. We can't forget that one because we love that one, too. Yes, that's great. (laughs) I have them both on my desk at all times. So thank you, Natalie, for those books. (laughs) So welcome, Casey. Welcome, Natalie. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Yes, thank you very much. We're so glad you're here. And I think, um, Casey, I think we want to kick off a little bit by sharing your journey. Um, So we know that there were big changes from guided reading to moving from guided reading to science of reading. And I guess maybe even we should be saying structured literacy. I feel like there's a lot of debate now about the terminology. So uh, (laughs) I want to make sure we're using the right stuff. Um, But can you share a bit about the big changes you experienced? Yeah, of course. Um, so like I said, our, I've taught first grade for quite a while. And kind of at the beginning of my teaching career, student teaching, everything was really centered around balanced literacy and guided reading, which I know is very typical of a lot of people's stories. And so I was kind of thinking back to even my student teaching and how we structured the day in a, and I student taught in a first grade classroom and we really structured it through this lens of small group instruction. Everybody was in a guided reading group, a lot of mini lessons, uh, no time for science and social studies whatsoever. And so then when I began teaching, um, I taught in an urban district for a while and I taught in a first grade classroom. So I just mimicked what I had seen, right? I trained everybody to do these wonderful centers and I had put everybody into a leveled guided reading group. And I thought, oh, this is just so great. Um, and it, it really did it. You know, the data was horrible. It was, management was a mess. And that was really the first couple of years I was teaching. Um, and then our district 
trained us all in Orton Gillingham, um, which really started kind of that shift of, oh, maybe there's a little bit of a different way to do this. So kind of the next couple of years, we really started implementing a foundational skills block into our day. Um, we were asked to do that using the Orton Gillingham methodology, um, but we still kind of clung on to our guided reading. And so it was like, well, we can do both, right? We're going to still do guided reading and all of these small groups, but yeah, we've got Orton Gillingham. And it was just, it was a learning process. So each year, I think I can really see a change of like where, oh, now I've learned a little bit more and we can implement another little change. And slowly we kind of phased out the guided reading because we saw there wasn't a need for it and it wasn't really being as impactful as what we were doing in our foundational skills block. And then slowly we transitioned something that a lot of teachers will do, um, or at least a lot of teachers I've worked with, kind of transition away from the guided reading groups and, you know, your Fountas and Pinnell levels into now we're going to put everybody into a skills group. So I tried that for a while too. And it still was leading to a lot of gaps for a lot of students, right? It was great that we were focusing on skills, but then it was still leading to those kids in the lowest group were never catching up. So then it was like, well, let's think about this another way. And so over the past three or four years, I've really focused on the whole group aspect and then thinking about small groups in a different way where I'm really focusing on the students who need that extra dosage or going back and backfilling you know, gaps for students. Um, so that's kind of where we're at now. Thanks, you for the, the big picture. Definitely appreciate it. I want to like dig in a little more. Can you... Yeah. Take us back to guided reading. And for, for those who might not know exactly what that looks like or they never taught it, they don't know what the FMP levels mean. Can you just like go into a little more detail about what what that really looked like in your classroom? Yeah. So at the beginning of the year, you know, we get out our Fountas and Pinnell benchmark assessments, assessment system box and do all these running records, see where everybody's at. Okay, we've got our, our level A's, our level B's, our level C's. And that's really how we, you know, organize students. Uh, we were not doing any diagnostic screeners. There was no, we were not, there was no focus on phonemic awareness or phonics. It was really centered around these levels. And then it was also, so I would have upwards of five or six different groups at a time. Um, and then also thinking about what the other kids were doing. So a big, when I started teaching, something that was really big at the time was what we would consider the daily five, right? So, which is just an approach to how you would structure your literacy block. And if we just have kids do these five things while the teacher is working with small groups, then, you know, just magic is going to happen. Um, and we had we even had a kit for our guided reading where let's say i would have a level b group i didn't really know anything about these b's and i would just start with the first b book in the set and we'd work our way through the b's and when we were done with b's we'd move on to the c's and we just kind of got as far as we as far as we did and there was really no um purpose to why I was meeting with that group. I didn't really, it wasn't closing any gaps. Um, and then what the other students were doing was kind of sporadic and chaotic as well. Um, what kinds of things centers. were they doing? 
So, you know, one of the things that we would do if you were thinking about the daily five or other models, you know, we would think about students doing independent reading, reading with partners, doing word work, working on writing, and doing some sort of listening to reading or kind of a computer center. So all the kids would be spread out throughout the room and I'd spent all this time and money uh, making these centers. And so we trained them how to do read to self. Well, not almost none of my kids could read. So they're going over and this is where at the time we were putting them into their just right books. So our classroom library was, you know, here are the A's, here are the B's, here are the C's. And you're a level C, so you're going to pick five books from this C basket. And then you can also pick, you know, a few other special books or something like that. And then we would train them to build stamina. And really all they were doing was sitting and looking at picture books, right? Or making up stories. And then after a few minutes, kids are rolling around, they're wearing hats or books on their head and talking to their friends. So that we're talking about first graders, right? First graders. (laughs) Yeah. And then... You know, we would have, we had um, for reading to partner, we would train them how to sit next to a partner, read with a partner when neither students could really read. Um, And there was, there wasn't a lot of um, strategy to how the partners were laid out. It was just happened to be who was in your group. Um, And for this, we would do big books, right? So we had this big book center and students would pick a big book and then they'd look through it together and they were supposedly reading, right? Um, and then I had a writing station where we just had this great, you know, vocabulary wall, um, with pictures and all sorts of different writing things and students would go over there. Um, and it was a time for them to write about whatever they want. Um, you know, and I remember my first year of teaching, I had this boy who wrote every day at the writing center. He wrote, I love my mom and then drew a picture sweet. <laughs> it's nice, but for 180 days, it's what he wrote. And I had no idea how to move him out of that, you know? And in my mind, it was like, well, he's, he's busy over there doing that. So we're just going to let it be right. Um, so a lot of drawing, a lot of somewhat writing. Um, and then word work is always an interesting one because this is one I see a lot still where this is really where like websites like teachers pay teachers come in where we were buying so many things cutting and gluing and there were word swords and activities that kids were doing um not a really a ton of accountability um and the problem with things like a cutting and gluing activity is kids would spend that 15 minutes cutting and gluing but that was it and then they maybe not, they maybe didn't even do anything else except cut and glue. And then it's time to move on to the next thing. Um, and so that was just kind of, I call it like a hodgepodge of whatever activities we could find. And I think we tried to align it to our phonics scope and sequence in a way, but it still really wasn't meeting what kids needed. Um, and then the last center that we would have kids do was a listening to reading center, uh, which kind of ended up being. You know, we go on the iPads and they would just use whatever apps we could find for free. So whether they were actually doing anything on these iPads, I don't know. Okay. Um, so and then that allowed me to pull all these groups. So I would usually see five groups a day and everybody would go do these center activities. And that really took up the majority of our literacy block. Um, yeah. So that's really what it looks like at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. 
I have so many uh, thoughts on that. And I do want to get Natalie involved in the conversation. But I I feel like I want to name that we're talking about a lot of different things here. We're talking about (laughs) vocabulary instruction. We're we're talking about writing. We're talking about reading. We're talking about foundational skills <laughs> we're taught i mean i think every plus classroom management like every i think avenue for literacy instruction is what we are seeing in this conversation and i think you're illuminating it through this small group of time we're talking about old practices moving to new practices um i i i kind of want to make sure we all are normed on that like what is guided reading and how like because you've taught you've said guided reading leveled reading And we're kind of also talking about the shift to um, some teachers pulling small groups for foundational skills. And I think those are two different things, right? So while we're talking about guided reading, we're talking about um, focusing, quote, on comprehension through leveled books. And there's not a ton of foundational skills instruction within that time. Is that right, Casey? That's right. And I think I personally, uh, I use guided reading and leveled reading really synonymously. So which is kind of a mistake I, <laughs> I should do because no, I no, 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 I, I just wanted to call it out not because you did it. But mm-hmm. I think like we have we, we hear often about leveled libraries, right? But then we yeah. also hear often about this practice called guided reading. And those two things are kind of connected because we're using a leveling like a leveled book system to execute guided reading where you're talking about like students start in the b books and then move to the c books and move on but then we also may have leveled libraries in classrooms as you know a practice that we know is now ineffective through this body of research called the science of reading so i think that's like i i just think it is going to be used interchangeably because of the way that guided reading is using the leveled materials. Like I think in conversation, I've I've heard teachers use that interchangeably. I've used it myself when I was, what you said, Casey, I was like having so many pictures in my mind of when I was a second grade teacher, when you were like the books on their head and they're rolling around. I was like, oh my gosh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really see that. Um, but I guess I, I would love to hear a little bit from Natalie, like before we even kind of dive into your the piece and and the connectedness of it. Like, what are your initial reactions right now with all that you know as someone who's not been a teacher, you know? <laughs> well, I, I haven't been a teacher, but I have spent time in classrooms. And in fact, when I was when I, when I was researching the book, I, I, one of the classrooms I followed through a school year was a first grade classroom. And Casey's description <laughs> was, is pretty pretty much what I saw. And I I think, I mean, that's I guess the first thing that struck me when I walked into this classroom was that there were all these tables and there was this kidney-shaped table in the corner and the teacher, so there are 20 kids and teachers working with like five at, at the same time. And my, I have to say my first impression was of noise. Um, this was a class that happened to have 14 boys and six girls and there was a lot of noise. And one teacher, basically, sometimes she had a sort of grandmother helper, but um I just, it was like a three ring circus. It just didn't seem like there was any way one teacher could, these were six year olds and they were supposed to be directing their own learning. This is leaving aside whether there was anything worthwhile that could have been going on at those centers, given what they were supposed to be doing, but they weren't often even doing what they were supposed to be doing. Um, and so, you know, I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, how does this work? 
Uh, <laughs> and it took me a while to sort of figure out where this came from. And and in fact, there's it's not sort of grounded in evidence. I think this system, it seems like, oh, well, this is just the way it's always been. And this is the way we do it. And of course, it's got to be better than having kids all sit at desks in rows, because that's like from the 19th century or 20th century. And actually, this did come in in the latter part of the 20th century. And I think it was imported from the English, what was called infant school. And the idea was there, it was very, you know, progressive. There was a lot of progressive, constructivist stuff going on between England and the United States. I don't think either country really benefited <laughs> from it. Um, and so the idea of the infant school is that, you know, kids just wandered from station to station or center to center at will. There was no set curriculum at all. They did whatever they wanted. And that morphed into, uh, and, and that was maybe for the whole school. Uh, that fortunately went by the wayside. But what we are left with is this legacy of let kids move around from center to center and sort of direct their own learning, although it's much more restricted now because there are levels of the not you can't just choose anything to read you know you have to choose from your level etc so it seems more scientific but in fact it, there's still no real science behind it if i could just i guess summarize what science there is um there there is uh, there are studies showing that kids do benefit as you might expect from like working in a small group directly with the teacher right of course kind of depends on what they're working on but but that seems to be canceled out by the majority of their time being spent without any te teacher's guidance, doing things that may not have much educational value. Can I ask Casey really quick, Natalie? I was I was curious about that. Like, how much time were they with you versus how much time were they out in the centers? Yeah, so I actually had to go back and work this out and do it. <laughs> and and you know, and if you have a typical two-hour literacy block, you might say our rotation is usually about twenty minutes times five. So if they were in one group. They were easily working independently for 60 to 80 minutes a day. And in some classrooms, that might be a lot less, but that, that's, that was kind of typical for my first few years of teaching. Um, the less whole group time was, was what we were told was better. What like stands out to me about that being a parent is I cannot even imagine like if I were a parent who had three kids pulling one over to the side and being like, Let's read this book together or whatever we're doing. And the other two are just causing chaos in the background. I mean, I, I'm just thinking like times that by by what, five? Imagine all those kids in your, your house like and for an hour. That, like <laughs> chaos, Lori. It's like how, how much is actually like going on? What do they really do? Even if they're like yeah. behaving. <laughs> right. I know. I know we interrupted you, Natalie. Sorry, Natalie. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, no, but you're you're right. Um, and I, but the what I was going to say is that the net result seems to be that the kids who are the in the higher reading groups who are already doing pretty well, they benefit the most from small group instruction. And the kids who, if they're supposed to be benefiting the most, the ones at the the lower reading groups, they don't move up. And so this practice seems to actually widen the gap between the highest and lowest achieving readers. Uh, obviously not intentionally, but that seems to be the net effect. And if I, I mean, there's there's one other thing that I can mention here, which is what struck me first was the, the noise level in these classrooms. And um, more recently, I was reading a book by a, a woman named Annie Murphy Paul, who's a, an education writer uh, called The Extended Mind. And she was writing, you know, it wasn't really that much focused on K through 12 schools 
she was writing about open plan offices and all these studies showing that the noise level in open plan offices is really distracting and interferes with productivity. And I can I, attest to one that. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, one would think. Um, and it was it started in the 50s. It was cheaper just to tear the walls down. And there was this theory that it would lead to collaboration and increased productivity. But no, uh, the opposite really happens. Um, and I just I wondered, well, what about these classrooms, these sort of open plan classrooms where there's this fairly high noise level? And even when it's not that high, the teacher's always talking to this one group. And, and it turns out that there are studies showing that ch- children are even more sensitive to background noise and be distractible uh, as a result of background noise than, it, than adults. So we're, har- we're hardwired to be distracted by especially the sound of human voices. I also, because I, Casey, when you did your overview, you you said that basically there was like a step in between where you are now. And I'm, I would love to hear that, that like basically you kind of kept... Like you kept the small group structure, but changed to science of reading. I'd love to talk through like what you learned during that period too, before you got to the like, what really works. There were a couple of years where there was like a shift, right? That big shift where we were trained in Orton-Gillingham. So then it was told, we were told by our district, you need to have a minimum of 45 minutes whole group where we're teaching. And that's really where I started learning about what I'm doing now. But then we probably had, it was probably less time than it was, I think maybe a 45 minutes where we would see like three groups and then the kids would go to a couple different activities or centers. And then we still were doing like reader's workshop and writer's workshop. Um, So this was taking, you know, the majority of our day, right? And no, no time for content. But when we were doing the skills-based approach, we started using like the core phonics survey or screeners. And that's how we put kids into groups. And, you know, I might have a group that's working on letter sounds. Another group is learning about magic E and another group is learning about, you know, our controlled vowels. And then maybe in our whole group time, we're learning about digraphs, right? So now you're kind of all over the place based on this. And I think what it led to, it sounds really great because you're pinpointing, oh, these kids are ready to move on to this. But it didn't always tell you like all the holes that they might have. And then it also, there were a lot of like rules of things. So like an example might be, you know, the CK rule after a short vowel. A lot of kids didn't know that. They maybe knew how to read those words, but did they know how to spell them? No, but we just moved them on anyway. So we were still creating all these holes Um, And kids were really confused because then what we were working on at whole group time was not aligned to what they were doing at small group time. And then maybe what they were being asked to do at a center time was even something else different. And it just, it was hard, it was hard to implement. So it sounds kind of really nice theoretically, but it was hard to implement. Um, And it sounds better than like the level B where you were like, I don't even know what we're doing. We're just pulling out the level B books. (laughs) Like at least you were like, okay, I assess them. I I see where their gaps are. I'm going to do something about that. So it it seemed like a step in the right direction. Yeah. And I think it was. And I think it was. (laughs) Um, And then I think the kind of the shift after that was actually when um, the school district I was working for previously We adopted a content building curriculum. Um, EL Education was the one we did. And we adopted um, their, the content strand. 
And they also have a skills block strand. We chose to continue with the work we had already previously done. And that's where it was like, well, where are we going to fit in this hour of um, content literacy? And, you know, it kind of replaced our reading and writing workshop. But we also then, you know, we kind of went back and forth. And that's kind of when we developed the model of like, well, maybe we don't need to be seeing you know, five different groups, because we also weren't seeing kids every day. So some kids were being asked to spend 45 minutes or an hour away from the teacher, never being seen in a group. Oh, we don't have to worry about them. They're at grade level um, kind of thing. And so that's where we went through and said, let's think about this a little bit different. We've already got this really great whole group set up. And then what if right after we teach this, you know, 45 minutes or an hour of whole group, we then just really meet with the kids that need the extra dosage. And there were, you know, there's a lot of things that I can add to that of how we like made those groups and decided what whole group we were doing. Um, And that's kind of then we were using that data to kind of really inform those um, instructional pieces versus just opening up. Now, the scope and sequence says we're going to start here. So this is what we're going to work on this week. Um, And that's really where what we're doing now kind of evolved from. Can you dig into those details a little? I'm ready. Yeah. 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 So um, kind of what the literacy block, sometimes I don't always like that term, right? We We can do that literacy all day. But if you're thinking about a two hour literacy block, Really about half of the time is devoted to that decoding piece, your foundational literacy piece, and then about half of the time to your content literacy piece. Um, And most of that time is done whole group. That doesn't mean we're sitting in rows. That doesn't mean we're just sitting. You know, it's very, you know, I'm teaching kindergarten now. We're switching it up every five to six minutes throughout those blocks of time. Um, It's very engaging and interactive. But I am with the kids all the time. Um, And then we, for the foundational skills hour, we would teach for about 45 minutes. And then the last 15 minutes, I would just pull the students that really needed um, gaps filled in. Now, there were years where I would, you know, my class would start 30% of kids on grade level, 20% of kids on grade level. So then what does that look like? I'm not going to put 80% of my students in a tier two intervention. So that's really where we leaned on those diagnostic assessments, our universal screener assessment, but then also our diagnostic assessments. And that's where we would go through and go, okay, where do we need to begin at whole group? What's our data telling us for whole group? And then who are kind of the outliers that may need something on top of that? So for example, you know, one year, we do, we always start with a letter sounds assessment in first grade. And the letter sounds assessment was just all over the place. There were so many gaps. So my team was like, you know what? I think even though it's first grade, we need to go back and reteach letter sounds. So we took 26 days, taught a letter sound a day with formation, letter names, started into CBC words. And if we hadn't done that or the whole rest of our year, we would have just been fighting a battle. We went back and said, okay, whole group, this is where we need to go. And then at the end of those 26 days, it was like, okay, now who who is still not quite mastered those? We're moving on to the next thing. But, oh, these four kids still have some gaps in their letter sounds. Great. There's my small group that I'm going to see. 
and, you know, until they've mastered those, then we can kind of move on to the next thing. Um, and so that really changed uh, how we looked at that foundational skills block or foundational skills hour. So then you have about 15 minutes, you said, for pulling the very targeted scholar yeah. groups. What, what do the other students do during that time? <laughs> yeah. So I think one, th- one important thing to note is, you know, kind of your most um, high need students are not get really getting this independent time, right? They're with me in that group or we're in a whole group setting. Um, and that doesn't mean they never have downtime to, you know, read or draw or whatever. Um, the rest of the students were really working on targeted tasks aligned to our current skill. So if we were working on, you know, AI and AY that week, then we would go through and pick really targeted skills. So for example, I might have students rereading decodable readers, you know, for fluency. And they were so much more engaged in that because they weren't just picking self-selected books. They could read them and they they really liked practicing those. And, you know, you could add in some different ways to motivate them. Um, and then last year in first grade, I would do like I'd give them a decodable passage. They'd have to go through and highlight all of our, you know, the words with A-Y. Then there would maybe just be a few like basic comprehension questions that I would ask. And, you know, the, the nice thing about that was they were doing it was there was an accountability piece to it. Right. And it was routine. They knew how it worked. Um, it was much quieter. Students were working maybe at their tables or desks. They may be on the floor, but it was wasn't all over the place with materials. Um, and then occasionally we'd add in some writing tasks, either aligned to the skills. So I might give them a word bank of words with a Y and then they would have to use those words in their writing. Okay. And then the other thing we would do was tie it to our whatever we were working on in content. So if we were in first grade, one of our big units was on birds. So then we had already built all this background knowledge about birds. And then I would kind of give them, you know, a writing template about birds. And then they just went crazy with their writing because they actually had something to write about. Right. They had they had knowledge about this topic and it wasn't just write about, you know, whatever you want kind of thing. Right, right. I love my mom for 180 days, right? Yeah. (laughs) Natalie, I'm wondering if you want to add anything or share anything um, that you might be thinking about what Casey is. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I guess one thing that um, I've been thinking about is that we're we're talking about both uh, structure and also sort of content. And it's so it's it would be possible to have whole group instruction that doesn't work very well because you're not teaching things that are actually meaningful. Um, so I just, you know, I think we might want to clarify the distinctions here. Um, and the other thing that that occurs to my mind is, uh, you know, when I've seen guided reading and using small groups, it's been mostly, I think, focused on comprehension skills with like, oh, you're having trouble reading that word. Let me help you like read that particular word, but not so, so much on decoding. Um, and and also, and so Casey's been referring to skills. And often, I think there's some confusion between decoding skills or foundational skills and comprehension skills. So I just feel like there's a, like 
a lot of different things that are being discussed here that, and I don't, I hope that it's not confusing to listeners. <laughs> no, please. Yeah. I, sorry. I think I agree. I think anytime we can clarify that is important. And I'm wondering, Casey, if you have anything to, to share in reaction to that, like clarifying skills and things like that. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I can see what you're saying about that. I think when I'm talking about, I mean, in my reference so far, when talking about skills really has been on like those foundational skills, phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, those types of pieces. Um, and I think something interesting to note is like when a lot of this, these shifts happened in how I structured the small group time was really when we shifted away from like our comprehension skill of the week which a lot of times then we were asking kids to do something with at their independent time. Because now we had this whole hour where we were really digging into, uh, um, instead of a comprehension skill or task, it was now focused around our content. And then that's kind of removed away from the foundational skills block. So I don't, I don't know if that really clarifies a yeah. little bit, but. And I think, well, I think there are a lot of classrooms that are not, really trying to teach any content in the literacy block. And so you could have, I guess what I'm thinking is, well, you you could take away from this discussion, well, I could do, I should do whole class instruction on comprehension skills and strategies for an hour. And that's probably not going to work very well either, because we know um, that, you know, those kinds of skills and strategies have limited value. And that what is really key to comprehension, especially comprehending more complex text is building background knowledge, building familiarity with the complex syntax of written language and those things. And I do think that that kind of content-focused instruction really lends itself very well to whole group, all you know, whole class instruction. And one of the advantages of it is it gives the kids who maybe are not as advanced and they're decoding their foundational skills, it gives them access to rich content complex text and to participation in class discussion about that content. And all of that is going to help them absorb and retain vocabulary, um, familiarity with complex syntax. That is going to kick in when their foundational skills catch up to where their oral language skills are and their listening comprehension is. It's going to enable them to read at a higher level once they can decode fluently because they'll have they don't they'll have the background knowledge stored in long-term memory and we know from studies that that is a, is a real boost to comprehension and and of course to writing as well so i just wanted to get that in there yeah. well and i'll add like i think when we're talking about like some of the shifts that i made this kind of brought some of that back um you know one of the things we did not want to give up when we were working with level text was because we were saying, well, we're also working on comprehension. This is where students are working on comprehension and reading for meaning. But we would go through, let's say our skill of the week was, you know, finding the main idea that um, then I'd go through all five of my groups and I try to pick a text that was like working on finding the main idea. But that's really hard or impossible to do when you're reading a level A book. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, that's just you're, you're not doing that. But we were like, can you, Casey, why? Why isn't it hard to do? Well, let's say you're reading, you know, at the park and it's, you know, <laughs> I like to swing. I like to slide. I like to run. And then, you know, what's the main idea of this book? 
I like to park. do things at the I park. Like I don't know. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, you're not. And then we were like, well, that's, we're working on comprehension though. And it's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I saw too. I mean, I, I remember observing one small group. I think it was a level C book. It was brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? And the skill that was supposedly being taught was, I believe, main idea. And I said to the teacher, like, what's the main idea here of brown bear? She said, well, I'm going to just try to get them to see there's this pattern. And that's, I mean, it was like, yeah, not quite. <laughs> right. So I think if we can kind of shift now, what do you, what do you see in your students with a, because you've taught using a knowledge building content rich curricula. What would you see students like? For example, you want to run with that bird idea, the the bird uh, content idea. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you tell us a little bit about what you see or what you saw in students as they like? What does it truly look like to to teach you know and comprehension? Which I kind of use that loosely to to say that. So, well, especially in kindergarten and first grade, we're now focusing on the listening comprehension piece. And that's not that we never transition kids into reading their own texts and comprehending those texts. Obviously, that's our goal for reading. But students aren't always able to read those high-quality texts that really lend themselves to these great comprehension pieces on their own. So now I'm reading aloud those books, which are usually above our, our grade level, which we never would have done before. And everybody is has access to that just because you don't know your letter sounds or you're in whatever group you can still listen and comprehend um what we're doing and then you can apply that to your writing you can apply that to our our discussions we're having in class um and and so on and and so forth so like it really creates this access to um content and comprehension for everybody in the class um, where we weren't doing, I mean, that just wasn't happening before. Um, and students really just never got the opportunity to move past those low level stages. Um, and I think some of the things that really changed some of my mindset is when I saw some of those students who maybe were struggling readers, but they're telling me facts about birds and they're, you know, they know all of these things and it's like, oh, and this is really going to help you later on, too, after, you know, when you do know how to decode and read. So that's kind of what I would add to that. I have a, I'm super curious about this, how you both would answer this question, because you, you're taking me back, Casey. I actually taught EL just for one year, but it was in sixth grade. And I remember very distinctly, I had a an administrator who said that she wanted me to start doing small group instruction. Mind you, I had like a 45-minute block to teach the students EL, and I was supposed to also do a small group instruction. So it was a lot. But but I also struggled with the with uh, how do I do this, right? With you, There's sixth graders, so we're, we're not really talking about... Some of them probably still did need some foundational skills, but I didn't have the assessments for it. I didn't have the time to do that within my own classroom. So, I, you know, as, if I'm looking at the EL curriculum, I'm looking at more comprehension I was I struggled with exactly like what do I do like I don't want to do oh so they they took this assessment they got this inference question wrong so now I'm working on inferences with them that didn't make sense to me I think what I did do was like I think this I think they're not getting this text that we're reading 
right now. So I was trying to help them through with that specific text. I don't even know if that was the right way to go with it, but I'd love to hear what you both would say, especially Casey from, you know, in the younger grades, do you do any small group instruction with the comprehension side, the the knowledge building side of, of your curriculum? So I wouldn't say it's really like a set small group. There were times when maybe we were working on an independent like writing task there might be some kids that I would pull over to provide more support to or like a scaffold to for whatever that was. Maybe those students got additional writing prompts or, I ha- you know, you had to kind of guide them along a little bit because they weren't um, as independent with their writing skills. I, and some of that came with like uh, with the comprehension piece, too. I taught, you know, my class was always, you know, 50 to 60 percent of students were multilingual learners. So there was a lot of those vocabulary pieces. Um, so sometimes, you know, we would, in conjunction with my, like, multilingual partner teacher, she might come in and pre-teach some things in her group, right, that she knew we were going to talk about. So those were kind of the ways we approached, like, the small group piece. It was really just as needed for students, but there was no structure to it, per se. Yeah. Can I ask, Casey, when she would come in and pre-teach... Would she come in and do something like, today we're going to be doing inferences. Here's what an inference is. And then bloody, bloody, blah, blah. Or would it be, um, today we're going to be learning about, and here are some vocabulary words you might see, or something of the sort. I'm just curious what it looked like to really be specific here. Um, so that when we talk about like pre-teaching or front-loading, how that could look for our students who might need more support, quote, in comprehension. Yeah, it was always tied to the content. So if we'll go back to the birds piece. It might be, you know, if she's taking them, you know, let's build some background knowledge even beforehand about just some vocabulary that we might talk about. Maybe just even looking at a diagram of a bird and talking about, you know, the beak and the wings and the feathers. And then, you know, in whole group, those students were like, oh, yeah, I know a little bit about this too, which just kind of helped. Um, I'll also add some of that that those pre-teaching pieces were also just so beneficial for all students, right? So, but it was just a way to kind of bring those kind of two groups together. Um, And I think something important to note that I honestly struggled with when moving to the content building curriculum was moving away from the comprehension skill of the week, right? It was like, okay, I'm teaching this unit on birds and today we're asking questions and now tomorrow we're going to retell some facts about this story. And then the next day, and but it was because we had moved away from that piece and it was more about the content. And I don't think we had to teach kids, you know, this is how you make an inference. It, it just kind of lent itself to that, right? As you're reading these high quality texts and asking the right questions, asking the right questions, right? So... It, it really truly moved away from the, that's yeah. comprehension skill piece. You know, if I could jump in, it reminds me of um, when I was following this second grade class and they were using a curriculum called core knowledge language arts and they would be making inferences and predictions and comparing and contrasting right and left in the context of 
you know, Athens and Sparta um, and the War of 1812. But this school, this class, they were also still doing leveled reading and they they had a, a time set aside for comprehension skills with level text. And and these same kids who I had just seen comparing Athens and Sparta, they were not getting like the difference between the Canadian Thanksgiving and American Thanksgiving that they're in different months. And it, it wasn't, you know, and, the, and so was that because they couldn't make inferences? No, maybe they were bored by this little text about Thanksgiving okay. or whatever. They just... So I, I do think, though, um, it is important to make sure that students have a literal understanding of the main points of a read aloud. Uh, there are different ways to do that. I think with older kids, writing can be brought in as a very effective way of not just teaching writing skills, important as that is, but as a comprehension check. And you can do sentence level activities. They don't take long. And, you know, often kids are not going to raise their hand and say, you know, hey, I didn't understand like whatever. Um, but if you give them a quick writing activity you, and it's well designed, you find out very quickly who did not understand what you thought they understood. And then, of course, you don't want to stop with literal questions. But I think often teachers have been trained to think we don't want to waste time on just literal comprehension. We want to go straight to those higher order thinking skills, synthesis, analysis, et cetera, when eventually you do want to get there. But you can't get there unless you First, make sure that kids have literally understood what you what you think they have understood. So a good curriculum, I think, is going to be structured in such a way that, that it'll start with the teacher asking questions that test literal comprehension and then move on to more higher, like, let's make, you know, not let's make an inference, but a question that implicitly requires kids to make an inference or draw a conclusion or whatever. Yeah, I think that's, that's helpful, Natalie. I think that's where I was going with my where I wanted my small group instruction to go. I don't know that I was ever successful with it. So don't don't look at me as a model for it. But uh, I think that's, you know, I, I kind of was thinking, well, if they're not understanding the key points of because we we're reading a whole novel, right, in the sixth grade. So if they're missing things at the very beginning that are just the literal understanding of this, I'm losing them for a whole quarter. <laughs> you know? So I wanted uh, that's where I was instead of, you know, just doing random practice on different types of questions, it was like, I want to make sure they understand this text so that they can do that more difficult work as we keep on moving. Well, I'm wondering, is there anything that you both have to say that you haven't said yet that you'd like to share or add to any thoughts that you've maybe previously started and hadn't finished, or you just really want our listeners to know uh, about what we've talked about today? I'll, I'll add that I think when you're making these shifts in small groups because I was one of those people that was so set in my way, you know, and I had only been teaching for a few years, right? So, and I, but I was like, I know that this is what we have to be doing. And this is what, um, you know, and our whole day was really built around these small groups of instruction. Um, and it, and I'll, and I think a lot of people, this is where we start with, we start by moving to, you know, structured literacy or as, you know, so we're, what we're kind of trying to move away from just calling it science of reading. Um, because now I see a lot of classrooms are like, well, we do science of reading and I can still do my small groups in science of reading. But it really also needs to add in that knowledge piece, right? They go hand in hand because, you know, my first four years of teaching, we almost taught no science or social studies, or it was, you know, just integrated through a read aloud that we did. And then as we moved away from the small group, it allowed me more time for science and social studies, right? Like 
I teach kindergarten this year, and we have a dedicated science block with content literacy and a dedicated social studies block with content literacy that these kids are engaging in daily. If I was still doing an hour or plus of small groups, we would not have time for that piece. So it really does go hand in hand together when you're making these changes. Um, And I think that's just, it's been so beneficial for the kids. Yeah. Such a good point. Thank you for bringing up the the whole day, not even just the literacy block, but what it can do for the whole day. Yeah. And I think uh, following up on that point, I mean, uh, you know, sometimes people feel like, well, I don't have time to do all these things that what we waste a lot of time in the current structure, a a lot of this time spent in small group rotation is wasted. So there there is enough time in the school day if we just use the time more wisely. And I guess one other point I'd like to make is the uh, it's going to be tremendously helpful for a teacher if the school or the district has adopted a good curriculum that covers it does a good job covering both foundational skills and the the comprehension and I would call it you know building knowledge piece um, because it's not just that we want kids to memorize facts about content but if if you are not giving them rich content to sink their teeth into, they will not become good comprehenders. And it's hard for individual teachers to come up with all of these things on their own. Plus, all of these things, especially building knowledge, extend over across grade levels, periods of years. And only a curriculum is going to be able to s- sequence these things in a logical way so that kids will have the knowledge they need to learn the next thing the curriculum expects them or the teacher expects them to learn. So. Yeah, that's what I would add. Yeah, we get a lot of questions about that too, Natalie, They're in our inbox. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have a knowledge building curriculum. No. What do I do? And I always think it's yeah. it's fairly impossible to, to build the knowledge in the, the sequential way across the grade level and within, I'm sorry, within the grade level and then across the grade levels, across the grade bands in the way that a knowledge building curriculum would and does. So I think what I think this conversation is making me think so much about, I wrote it down, um, is that tier one is so, so important in terms of what happens in structure and content. I think that that, that is like the biggest takeaway for anyone listening and, and how we're thinking about maximizing that instructional time. And and Casey, I, I think your journey really illuminates that for our listeners. I think like what you're saying about tier one, I think that is where, you know, when my shifts happened, that's because I saw in tier one that that's where we could close those gaps for students in foundational skills and in our content and comprehension skills. So because before we were just trying to almost over differentiate for students and it wasn't it wasn't working the way we thought it was. And I still see a lot of this happening in our schools where it's like, well, I have to see all these kids in group. And well, oh, you never see those higher readers in a group. Um, You know, I have to see them and work on these things. And it just never felt like a good use of time. It never felt like, you know, it's like there has to be a way we can do this together. Um, And if I look back at data, you know, from the first four years of teaching to the next couple and, you know, last year in first grade, you know, I saw I had 95% of kids at grade level at the end of the year. This year in kindergarten, you know, we got we are at 100% of kids meeting the winter benchmark in kindergarten. And I truly attest because it's because of tier one, it's not because of, 
you know, I put everybody into a specific group. Um, I also would add, you know, I think about some students that I have this year, if I would have started them in a group, let's say working on letter names for the first six weeks of school and not allowed them the opportunity to engage in anything else, they would not have probably met that winter benchmark. They would not be as farther along. And it's because I was using a really high quality tier one whole group piece and then just focusing on the specific needs for those specific students in a small group setting, very sparingly. I'm so glad you said that. I, th- I mean, I think it's a general misconception that if we're closing any gaps, we're looking at tier two, tier three, right? Small groups or one-on-one, that's where that happens. So I'm just really glad you brought that up, that it can happen and can happen very well <laughs> in tier one instruction, maybe even better and better use of time. Yeah. Yeah. I actually saw a piece yesterday that I knew we were having this conversation today and I was thinking, oh my goodness, like I saw the headline and I thought this is why I think like teachers and and principals are confused. And it was in uh, the 74 and it was about how we were trying to, to um, I guess, like repair the uh, or fill in gaps from the COVID learning loss through like tutoring and small groups. And that to me, I was thinking, well, what about if we just fix tier one first? Not first, maybe we fix tier one and, right? Casey, like you just like you just described, mm-hmm. have a strong tier one in place and fill in gaps as needed. So it's if I think if we miss that tier one, we're we're completely missing the boat for for all of our kids, you know, and that I just I, it just struck me. And so I'm so glad that you you're here today to have this conversation. I'm so glad that you yeah. shared it in the way that you did with like such clear examples for everyone and that Natalie shared, you know, what, what the the research says and and all of this important information about your experiences in classrooms too, to just kind of illuminate that it's bigger than Casey's classroom, right? I'm sharing it happened in my classroom. Melissa's like, oh, I didn't really know what was going on either. So <laughs> um, thank you for both for being here. Of course. Our pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Can we wrap with a, for with a couple rapid fire questions? Do you have time? I know we're a few minutes over. <laughs> Do we want to escape without that or would you like to? No, that sounds good. Okay. Melissa, I'll turn right. it to you. All right. We're going to start with one for Natalie. You may have done this before. <laughs> I don't remember what your answers were if you did. So it's okay. Uh, what do you love to read? Well, I I love to read fiction. I mean, that's uh, what I read for pleasure. And uh, I don't often get enough time for it. But um, uh, let's see. Right now I'm reading a book that this happens to me. I've had a book on my shelf for like 15 years. It's called The Dive from Clausen's Pier. And I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> nice. Casey, what do you love to watch? Oh, um, I think it really depends. There's a lot, but I tend to, there's a lot of true crime <laughs> and a lot of dramas. Currently, I'm on a rewatch of all 19 seasons of Grey's Anatomy. Oh my. So that's been filling up my, my time. So. <laughs> all right, Natalie, what do you love to listen to? Uh, I love to listen to, well, all sorts of things, but mostly um, we. I, I like to listen to sort of jazz that's but not just really from the american songbook like uh popular songs from the 40s but um not with words because 
I remember this background noise <laughs> uh, distraction. Like if I often I'm cooking or reading the newspaper or whatever, and so I don't I don't necessarily want to get distracted by the words. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what I like to listen. To. I get that. <laughs> All right, last question for you, Casey. Why do you do what you love for education and literacy? Um, I mean, I think most teachers say this, but we're really doing it for the students. Um, I I think my reason. 10 years ago was much different than it is now. And I think so much of what I continue to do and advocate for and being on the podcast is because I've seen what structured literacy and building students' background knowledge of an array of content topics can really do to close gaps and provide opportunities for a lot of times for our media students who we've traditionally left behind and that's just where my passion is, and we'll continue to do that moving forward. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. We've linked your Twitter handles, and we, Natalie, we've linked your uh, your article uh, that we referenced here today. Um, and so everybody can find you all on Twitter and beyond, and we're just super grateful that you took some time to talk with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having thank us. You. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.